Testing. There it goes. Testing. Okay. Uh, no, it's not.
I've checked all my clothes in the closet, all the pants, all the coats. Well, there's no trousers in the, in the dirty clothes right now. But that's a good that's a good idea. I mean. Good morning. A couple of announcements today. Uh, no evening service. You all knew that. Service uh, resumes on the 9th at 6 p.m. As our Sunday school coincides with our evening services, we will postpone in classes until the 9th. Some of you have taken notice of a building. I had the good fortune to be in company of a couple of real manly guys on Wednesday that uh, power washed the entire church and helped with taking uh, some branches down on a tree there to clear their driveway. So it was quite a job. Uh, I allowed myself to get a little bit too hot or overheated and uh, I was mildly diagnosed with a minor case of uh, heat stroke or heat prostration. So I'd ask for prayer for that, that uh, I continue to, to get well. It's, it's a funny thing when you, when you have something like that. You, uh, get home, you get in bed, and they keep throwing the covers on you, and they keep throwing the covers on you, and you just can't get warm. And I happened to get up and go into the kitchen for some reason, and I thought to look at the thermostat, and it said 64. <laughs> I had forgotten to turn it from air conditioning to <laughs> furnace. <laughs> Always read the directions. So, with that being said, do we have any announcements or, or other tidbits of information? Do we have an update on uh, I do not. Does anybody else here have one? I haven't seen anything on the uh, on the prayer chain. They're bringing, uh, I think there is a, a specialist coming in from Toledo, Ohio, <coughs> to do checks on her brain function. So the, they're, they're trying to find out the area of the brain that's causing the seizures. Sounds weird, but they... they they go in the brain with a probe, and she's got to be awake while this is going on. And they, 
hit it with a probe and then they watch the body and see what is reacting to the probe. And then um, they figure out where the seizures originate. And from that point on, uh, they have a better way of addressing the seizures and so forth. Body is a marvelous thing when you think about it, the brain, the, the things that it can do. And the things that they've learned how to do is also marvelous. So the specialist, I think, is coming in from Ohio. Anything else? <clears throat> okay. Our scripture for meditation this morning is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 25, verses 19 through 28, page 38 in your pew Bible.
Just stand with us as we begin our service with opening prayer. Brother Ed Riffle, may I ask you to pray. standing <coughs> and little of a proper song leader today he has me okay it's uh, taken from the hymnal hymn number 60.
personal favorite from Winnie Bob there? Anybody? Three nine eight in the brown. <coughs> Any reason for this, brother? scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Matthew 21 verses 28 through 32 and it'll be page 1533 in your pew Bible <coughs> 
is the parable of the two sons. What do you think? Oh. <laughs> what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Pray that the Lord would bless his word. <clears throat> From the Trinity, <clears throat> page 350. Say again. 350, 3-5-0. Thank you. 
got warm in here. <laughs> well, we are having fun here. Here we go. Thank you. A lot of our ladies are away today at a women's conference in Ohio. So I pray that they have a good, encouraging day in the things of God. And men, it's been a long time since we've had a retreat too, right? So I'll have to put a fire under some of our other churches and see if we can't come up with something. Our text today is Matthew 21, and we're going to look at the subject of two sons. Last Lord's, <clears throat> Lord's Day, we studied together the parable of the vineyard workers. You recall that a landowner of a very large vineyard which is God himself, hired workers to work his vineyard beginning with an early morning group which agreed to work the entire day for a denarius. That's a, a Roman coin, pure silver. Later at 9 a.m. he went and hired more, and at noon hired more. At 3 p.m. he hired more. And last of all, at 5 p.m. he hired one final group. Well, at the close of the day, the foreman was instructed to pay each worker beginning with the last first. Each worker, regardless of the hours he had worked, received the same amount of money. Ooh, this enraged the first hirees because they felt they should be paid more since they had worked all day bearing the heat of the day, while the five o'clock hirees had worked but one hour. So they were very upset. The landowner answered, however, he had been fair to them since the first hirees got exactly what they agreed to, which was one day's work for one denarius. So if he wanted to be generous to the late workers, that was his business, his money, to do with as he pleased. The real problem he also brought out of the complainers was that they were jealous of their fellow workers and of the landowner's generosity to them. So we drew out a number of lessons. Number one, injustice is never the issue for those who reap the benefits of God's kingdom because his kingdom favors are based on mercy, always on mercy. A deal with God nullifies the mercy of God, locks you into a labor agreement. And that's where a lot of people are. They want to make a deal with God. If you do this, then I'll do this for you. You don't realize that's not a good way to do business with God. I shouldn't even use the word business. Gracefully relationship with God. God has a right to do with his kingdom blessings, in this case salvation, 
what he wants to do, since salvation is his gift alone to bestow or withhold. People have lost all of their rights before God by being sinners. The only right they have is the right to be condemned. I don't think they like that, that idea of a right. But that's true. That would be just. They would be getting exactly what they deserve. Then we learn that God has determined that the latecomers of the kingdom, of his kingdom, will enjoy full gospel privileges along with the old timers. That's the doctrine of adoption. I think it should encourage you. You can come to know God and Christ late in life and still receive all the gospel privileges. Today we come to the parable of two sons. Interesting parable, by the way. As we do so, let's ask the Lord for his enablement. Our Lord, we're thankful that we can be together and study your word. These parables, these stories that you told, they have spiritual meanings. And we best pay attention to get the spiritual meaning. If we get locked into the physical, we will miss the whole point. We pray, Lord, that you will be with us to teach us concerning these two sons. One father, two sons. I pray that you will teach us your truths that will bless our souls, that will save our souls if we don't know you. Encourage us if we do. Amen. <clears throat> We're in this text dealing with the parable of the two sons. And the question I asked to start is what prompted this parable of our Lord? What prompted it? If you look at the context, you will see that Jesus had been under scrutiny by the religious leaders of his day concerning by what authority, they said, are you teaching and performing these miracles? They're trying to hold Jesus accountable to them. We didn't give you any authority to do this. So who told you you could go to the temple courtyard or stand on the street corner in Jerusalem and preach and teach as you are doing? By what authority? Jesus, however, did not give a direct answer. I love this. Instead, he turned the whole conversation towards another issue, the teaching of John the Baptist and how these religious leaders had responded to him. Verse 25. John's baptism, where did it come from? Asked Jesus. Was it from heaven or from men? In other words, did John invent water baptism as his own peculiar mark of identity for his teaching, or was John's baptism blessed with the authority of heaven? 
I might ask you the who have refused baptism the same question. Is water baptism today something which comes to us with heaven's sanction, or is it just the invention of men? If it is just the invention of men, then most assuredly you have every right to question it and to assess whether or not such a practice deserves your compliance. But if, like John's baptism, the baptism of Christ's church is from heaven, then refusal on your part brings you under the indictment of this parable, and that is a place you do not want to be. How so? Verse 32. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. Now, even more serious, Christ came to John and was himself baptized by John to fulfill all righteousness and to point the way to you, but you did not believe him. Christ. Ooh. Behold, a greater than John the Baptist has come. If men can be condemned for their refusal to heed John, what's their hope if they refuse to heed Christ? That's a good question. Well, the religious leaders of Jesus' audience never answered him. There you go. That's one way to deal with problems. They knew that if they said that John's baptism was from heaven, Jesus would nail him to the wall for their refusal to believe John. If it's from heaven, then why haven't you guys been baptized? And if they said that John's baptism was the invention of men, they feared a riot from the crowd because all the people regarded John as a prophet of God. Verse 25, verse 26. And so they answered Jesus. Here it is. We don't know if John's baptism was from heaven or from men. We don't know. What a convenient little cop-out those three words often are. I don't know. And how cowardly at times. These religious leaders most assuredly had an opinion concerning John's baptism. They certainly knew what their viewpoint was. But in order to protect themselves from the consequences of their wicked conclusions, namely that John was no prophet, and his baptism was a man-made ordinance, to skip that, they just answered, well, we don't know. We don't know. I wonder how many of you have lied to yourself or to others with the same cop-out and with regard to the same issue of water baptism. You would like to pretend that the evidence of the New Testament is scanty or that it is open to various Different interpretations. You like to point out that different churches believe different things about baptism. 
Some believe in believers only. Some baptize babies. There's sprinkling. There's pouring. There's immersion as far as the means. You like to point out that there, there is a spirit baptism in which all believers are baptized into Christ's body by his spirit. And so uh, water baptism is but the invention of men. So that would be John's water baptism too. Because of all these things, when it comes to your own evaluation of Christ's ordinance, baptism by water, you answer, well, I don't know. I don't know. Yet I would say you know much. You have just refused to believe and commit like these men in our text. One might conclude that Jesus answered in verse 27. Well, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Was his final statement on the matter of these religious leaders' refusal to believe and act upon the teaching of John, but it wasn't the final statement. He goes on to tell the parable of the two sons, which, as we have already hinted, brings this audience back to John, back to their refusal to believe the truth to the peril of their own souls. So that's where we're at. The parable. Verses 28 through 1 through, excuse me, 21. <clears throat> what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and he said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and he went. Then the father went to the other son and he said the same thing. And he answered, Oh, I will, sir. And he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. That's this group that Jesus is talking to. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. The tax collectors, the prostitutes, are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Well, very interesting address here. The opening of the address. What do you think, he says, to this group of people? What do you think? You know that the Christian faith is not afraid to address the intellect. It is an anti-reason, like so many of our day would like to portray it. It is reasonable 
to believe that our complex world came into existence by way of a masterful designer rather than by the fickle finger of fate, time plus nothing plus chance equals me. How stupid. <laughs> that is the absurdity. God is not afraid to ask you to think. He knows that the Christian faith can stand up to honest inquiry. We're not to be zombies who walk through life imbibing everything which men teach us without thinking. God wants us to think if the philosophies which men purport are the truth. And he wants us to put our thinking caps on when it comes to our faith as well. Jesus taught us to love God with all your soul and all your mind. All your mind. Matthew 22, verse 37. Paul taught us to be renewed. Where? In our minds. He goes on to say, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. Romans 12, verse 2. And the context shows that the conformity to the world that we see in so many professing Christians is due to the fact of an unrenewed mind. They are thinking about spiritual things through a worldly mind, like these religious leaders in our text. No wonder they can't approve of John's baptism or his teachings on righteousness. Peter put it this way. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. 1 Peter 4, verse 7. And so Jesus asked, what do you think? What do you think? His question is as appropriate today as the day he put it to the crowd. He did not ask, what do you feel? I'm so sick of this feel thing. What do you feel? No, he said, what do you think? Our Lord was not looking for an emotional response to the parable, but an intelligent evaluation and a thoughtful answer. When we're talking about our faith, we need to realize that truth is contained therein. We ought to be able, Peter says, we ought to be able to give an answer for anyone that asks about the hope that we have in Christ. And it can't be, well, I just feel that there's too much of it. And so he brings us to the parable. The parable brings before us one father, two sons. The father owned a vineyard, and he has, as often the case with farmers, the family members are expected to do their share of maintaining the crop. Even in my little gentleman farm that dad and mom had for us as kids back in Pennsylvania, yeah, we each had a role to do 
with taking care of the produce of the rabbits, 250 of them. It was our job to feed them and to clean their pens and all of that. You don't live on a farm and then just put your feet up in the hammock and smoke your pipe. So this father owned a vineyard, and as often the case with farmers, the family members were expected to chip in. The first son responded in rude fashion to his father's instruction to work in the vineyard by answering, I will not. Hmm. Like so many teenagers in our day, he gave a flat, no, no. In my day, if I ever told my father, no, I would have lost a few teeth, and then I would have been compelled to go and do as I had been instructed, bloody mouth and all. Young people, it is a great disrespect of your parents to tell them no when they ask you to do something. God observes this as a breach of his command to you to honor your parents and to obey them. Galatians 6, verse 1, verse 2. And God promises a long life and a good life to those children who obey and honor their parents. But the implication is also there that you will have troubles galore if you give them flack. Sadly, in our day, even more horrendous crimes are being perpetrated against parents by their children. Some years back, you remember the Mendez brothers who shot their parents in cold blood. More recently, a few years back, in our own state of Michigan in Birmingham, 33-year-old son axed his parents to death. Now the scriptures predict this. Matthew 10, verse 21, Jesus said, children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Well, if you were a student of the scriptures, then there's no surprise that this is going to happen. In this text, Jesus was referring to children in Christian homes who despise their parents for their faith. Now we are living in these days which ought to warn us that the day of judgment is near. Things are rapidly moving from bad to worse. The seed of rebellion was in the young man's response to his father when he told his dad, no, I am not going to work in the vineyard today. And you know that often rebellion surfaces firstly in speech in children. They test the water, so to speak, to see if they can speak disrespectfully and get away with it. And having done so, they become more bold to act in defiance. But this didn't happen 
with this young man in our story. Instead, he thought about how he had spoken to his father and how he had responded to his work order, and he realized that he had been out of line. And so he repented, which means he changed his mind and went to work in the vineyard. The point being that sinful conduct can be corrected through repentance and obedience. Praise God. So that brings us to the second son. The response of the second son was totally opposite. When his dad instructed him to work in the vineyard, he answered, Oh, I will, sir. But he did not go, says Jesus. So here was a young man who had the honor part down, the respect, but not the obedience part. He addressed his father as sir. But then he went ahead and did the direct opposite of what he said he would do. He lied to his father, however, politely. He had learned to use speech to fool his parents. He used speech as a cover to hide his real intentions. Young people, do you know that lying and deceiving your parents will earn you a spot in hell? So you're trying to scare us. I wish I could. I wish I could scare you into obedience, into love and honor and all of the special graces from heaven. Revelation 21 verse 8 tells us that those who have cleanse their sin in the blood of Christ, are entitled to enter the heavenly city. But on the outside it says, excluded from heaven's joy are all liars. Their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Revelation twenty-two fourteen says, everyone who loves and practices falsehood, that is deception, will be thrown into the lake of fire. Now let me hasten to say, it isn't that these sins are unforgivable by God. That's not it. They are forgivable. But as with this young man in our story, there was no repentance. There was no change of heart. He told his lie. He stuck to his lie. And he did the very opposite of what he said he would do. He did not go to the vineyard to work. Matthew Henry's commentary makes this observation. Matthew Henry writes, The parable itself represents two sons, two sorts of persons. Some that prove better than their promise, and others that promise better then they prove. Of the first son, his answer was bad, but his actions were good. Of the second son, his answer was good, but his actions were bad. They both had their faults. One was rude, and the other was false. False. 
End quote. Keep in mind that Jesus is speaking of more than a story here. He's talking about the kingdom of God, verse 32, and how men enter it. And to be a false son, as was the second son, is to be a liar in speech and disobedient in action. He never did enter the vineyard, God's kingdom. Though he spoke, spoke well of doing so, he had pleasant words to say, even the right words to say, but no obedience to the Father's will. Now when Jesus finished the parable, he asked his audience to tell him which son had done his Father's will. Verse 31. And the crowd answered correctly. Correctly, they said, well, it was the first. Which is to show that even the ungodly can see obvious truth. What they cannot see is how the truth applies to their condition. When these men answered Jesus correctly, they indicted themselves as being people like the second son when it came to John the Baptist preaching and his call to repentance and his call to baptism. They could see the truth, but they weren't going to apply it to themselves. What then is the pointed application of the parable? Well, the kingdom of God will be populated by what the world considers the riffraff of society. Because like the first son in the story, they said, I will not. But later he repented and obeyed the gospel of God. Verse 31, verse 32. We recall Jesus refers to tax collectors and prostitutes he could not have chosen two worst classes of people as an illustration. Both tax collectors and prostitutes were hated by the religious leaders of Jesus' day. It was like Hillary Clinton this week, I heard her say, of the Republicans. She called them the deplorables. So if you're Republican in your politics, you're deplorable. Tax collectors were Jewish men who worked for Rome. Ooh. They collected Caesar's revenues, extorted more money than they were supposed to, so they had something to put in their own bank accounts. They were considered to be traitors, they were considered to be turncoats to the Jewish nation, and they were considered to be thieves, which they were. One day when John was baptizing near the Jordan, crowds of people came to him and he preached a very fiery message. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And it says the people were convicted in heart 
and asked John, what shall we do? We also read, tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? And he answered them, don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Luke 3, verse 12 and 13. And their response at first must have been exactly that of the first son in our story. They were insulted. <laughs> They're not about to give up good paying job, even if it is ill-gotten money. Just because this Baptist guy is telling us to do so. But later they repented, they followed John's instruction. And we know this because in Luke 7, another gospel account of this, where Jesus praised the ministry of John as one who was more than a prophet, as one who had accurately prepared the way of the Lord through preaching the truth, we read, all the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. Luke 7, verse 29. Their obedience to John's preaching, their compliance with his baptism enabled these people to see that what Jesus was teaching was right. But we notice that Luke goes on to say, but the Pharisees and experts in the law rejected God's purposes for them because they had not been baptized by John. Luke 7, verse 30. And in both the cases, the biblical authors used John's baptism and the people's response to it as the test for their belief or disbelief in his teachings and as the underlying reason for those who could recognize the teaching of Jesus as being right. Simply put, these tax collectors and prostitutes had believed John when he came to show the way of righteousness, but the chief priests and the elders of the Jewish faith did not believe him. Verse 32. The tax collectors and prostitutes turned from their earlier refusal, they repented of their defiance, they submitted to baptism, and so doing, entered the kingdom of God ahead of the religious leaders, whose reaction to John was one of formal, external approval, while within their hearts, they had no intention of believing his teaching, no intention of obeying his instruction. That was the second son that's in the parable Jesus talks. So let me ask, what about you today? If God has placed such importance upon the baptism and teaching of John, and we see the terrible condemnation which had come upon these religious leaders of Jesus' day for their stubborn unbelief, they, by their own choice, were being excluded from the kingdom of God. And my question is, are you any better? God the Father comes to you through his ministers, like John, and he says to you, repent and be baptized. And you are saying, 
I will, sir. But you never do. Do you know that such a response places you into the same category of these religious leaders whom Jesus condemned? I mean, if there is a lesson to this story at all, it is this. God is not interested in lip service. But rather he's interested in obedience. If there's any sin, let it be the ill-advised insult, I will not, which in the end is followed by repentance and obedience. But let it not be polite words of honor. Oh, I will, sir. Oh, yeah. That do not result in action. So which of the two sons did its father's will? That's the question. May I say that's always the question. I mean, if you can't even get past the baptism issue, how can you claim to be obeying God in the more demanding areas of Christian doctrine? The test of obedience, brethren, it's in the area where you disagree with God. Not in those areas which you have a natural inclination to obey. Well, I agree with God that we shouldn't be liars. Even the world believes that, though they are liars. No, the hard part is the hard doctrine, hard to swallow, hard to obey, but we do it in obedience. The second lesson here is that the refusal to repent is even more aggravated when men see the error of their choices, and yet they will not respond to right. Look at verse 32, the latter part. Even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Believe John. The chief priests and the elders were certainly guilty of ignoring John's preaching and his insistence upon a changed life as a prerequisite to baptism. They didn't think John's baptism was from heaven at all. They hated John. They hated Jesus too. But even when, with that being the case, when they saw the changed lives of the prostitutes who had believed John's message, when they saw the transformation of men who had been corrupt tax collectors, Matthew being one of them, you remember, there was no excuse for their continued unbelief. <laughs> I mean, it's one thing to be skeptical at first, as sinful as that is, and then to come to your senses and admit that your evaluation was wrong, it's quite another thing to see that you made an error in judgment, but to stick to your guns anyway out of sheer pride or arrogance or defiance. This is what these religious leaders did. They knew, they knew that Jesus and his gospel were making a tremendous impact upon the lives of the sinners in their community. 
but nothing pleased them, and nothing moved them to consider their own position before God. Jesus put it this way. John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, he has a demon. As applied to our text, his baptism, his teaching, is not from heaven. Jesus goes on. The Son of Man, referring to himself. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And you say, here's a glutton, here's a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, prostitutes. Ah, but wisdom, says Jesus, is proved right by all her children. Do you see the problem? John abstained from bread and wine, and he was accused of being an emissary of Satan. Jesus ate both bread and drank wine, and they called him a glutton and a drunkard. So there was no winning with these people. You were damned if you did and damned if you didn't. So how do we know what's right? I mean, how should the scribes and the Pharisees been able to sort through their own fear and their own skepticism? Jesus tells them, Wisdom is proved right by all her children. He's saying to them, Hey guys, look at all the changed lives through John's ministry. Through my ministry. Doesn't this count for something? Doesn't that give you a clue as to the truthfulness of our teaching? Look at the godly children this wisdom is producing. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to see that a tax collector thief isn't stealing money from the people anymore in his job or that the woman of ill repute isn't working the street corner anymore. Changed lives for the better is a powerful argument that the holy God of salvation has come into their lives and has transformed them in thought, in speech, and in behavior. Hallelujah. That's what the gospel's all about. And what is more, Jesus tells us in this text that these religious leaders did see these changes. They did see it. They did see the transformation. They knew that these people had not been play-acting. But having seen it all and recognizing the truth, they still did not Believe him. There are some bad ministers in the world in our day, men who use their office to obtain their own prestige, their own power, their own wealth, 
But John wasn't one of them. And thank God there are still men in the pulpit who preach with the spirit of the baptizer, whose message is the gospel Jesus preached. And because of that, lives are changed. And not to believe them because they are men of clay, they, they have sinful tendencies. Not to accept their teaching because a human voice is attached to the words is to do so at great peril to your own soul. Here is our text. The religious were nullified by thieves and prostitutes because when John preached, those thieves and prostitutes refused to believe him? No, they believed. But they were thought of as the riffraff of society. Even after witnessing the changed lives of these people, they still did not repent, not believe him. The religious leaders were still dead set to be against John. So this whole parable is about John's preaching John's baptism, verse 25. John's demonstration to people of the way of righteousness, verse 32. And the indictment of this text is that those who accepted John's ministry were entering the kingdom of God, while those who rejected his ministry and refused to repent were like the second son in the parable who said, Oh, I will, but never did enter the Father's vineyard. Who would have ever thought that God placed so much importance upon the preaching and teaching of his ministers? Yet because this proud rejected John, they also rejected Christ. They rejected his word. The word was the gospel that Jesus preached. I have to ask, is this you this morning? You've heard the truth a zillion times. The gospel has been spelled out to you on numerous occasions. You know that the gospel of grace has changed people's lives because you have witnessed it. You know that baptism is the initial and elementary obedience which every disciple of Christ owes to him. All these things you know. But you have not believed. You have not obeyed the message preached and for this reason your soul is in peril and you are in jeopardy of never entering the kingdom of God see it's not enough to know what to do you need to do what you know may God give us grace thank you Lord for your truth it is a razor. It does cut us. It causes us to bleed. It causes us to think. It causes us to cry and to weep and to see where we have gone wrong and still do. And calls upon us to repent. And we're so thankful for that. I mean, just think about it. If you left us to ourselves, 
Where would ourselves end up? No, you come to us. You disturb us. You show us a mirror of our life of sin. You show us the clarity and the purity of Jesus' righteousness. And the comparison of where we are and where we should be rebukes us and calls out to us, Repent! 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 Turn from your evil ways. Come to Christ. Seek his forgiveness. For he is the great Savior that God sent into the world to deal with sinners such as we are. Bless these truths to our heart for your own glory and our good. Amen. Okay, from Trinity Hymnal, number 
him says it all. <clears throat> if any are going to be saved from their sin and their life of sin and enter into God's kingdom, it's going to be based solely on God's mercy. Not because you deserve it, not because you made a deal with God, not because you obeyed the Ten Commandments, which you can't do anyway. None of that. Jesus obeyed. And that's why we trust him. He will step in. He will be the substitute. He will plead our case before the Father. John calls him our advocate, our lawyer. Wow. Didn't think the scripture talked about tribunals. Yeah, it does. In the New Testament. Christ stands before the tribunal of God Almighty and pleads the case for his people. If you're one of his people by faith, you're safe. He pleads your case. And let me tell you, the Father isn't going to say to the Son, I'm not going to do that. The Father will do exactly what the Son requires. Because the Son always pleads in the area of righteousness. It's right to forgive so-and-so. I died for him. I paid his debt to society. Father, forgive him because the debt has been paid. Boy, just think about that. Our Father, we thank you for your truth. Thank you for the word of God. If we try to get right with God through our own merit, we are going to fail because we have no merit. Sinners are sinners by birth and by practice. That is what we are. If we're going to be forgiven, it's going to be on the merit of the per pure and perfect Son of God whose righteousness is impeccable. Perfect must meet perfect. The standard is perfect, can't have an imperfect justification. The law says the soul with sin must die. Okay. So if that's what the law says, the law of God, that's what's going to happen. But if I have a substitute, if I have someone that will step in and die for me, the law also says we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Ah, that's what we need. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Not Jesus Christ, the sinner, but the righteous one. Lord Jesus, help us to see that. If we skirt you, if we go try to go around you, we will fail. Let us not be like the religious leaders in the days of John the Baptist who trusted in their religiosity and condemned John and Jesus as well. Let us be with those prostitutes and those money-grubbing capitalists who repented of their sin and came to plead mercy 
on the basis of Jesus. Thank you for that, Lord. Be with us today. Be with our ladies as they're away, bringing them back safely. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you.